is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history in 1913, Green Bay Packers legendary coach Vince Lombardi was born. I'll tell you something, Leroy, you're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Come on, let's beat him up there! Get him out of there, will you? Hey, what about that now? Vince Lombardi was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and went on to be the icon of winning and success in America and throughout the world. This is his story, as told by his players, his family, and himself. Our narrator is the unmistakable voice of John Facenda. And why not? The man nicknamed the voice of God could take classic sports footage and make it even more unforgettable. So let's begin. Here's John Facenda. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, 1913. He was born on June 11th in Brooklyn, New York. His godfather was Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, a legendary racetrack figure who trained three derby winners. When he was eight, he was an altar boy at St. Mark's Church. He wanted to be a priest. Here's Vince's mother, Mrs. Matilda Lombardi. He wanted to be a priest, and all of a sudden, that was off. Lombardi was an all-city fullback at St. Francis Preparatory High School, and then accepted a scholarship to Fordham University in the Bronx to play for the Fordham Rams and their coach, Jim Crowley, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame in the 1920s. Here's Tim Cohane the former publicity director at Fordham University. Those days, Fordham had a play in which Lombardi is the right guard. Had to block the Pittsburgh left tackle Tony Matizzi, who was 215, 220, an All-American player. Lombardi weighed about 172. And uh, in trying to block Matizzi, or in blocking him, Vince received severe uh, cuts inside his mouth to the extent that he played almost 60 minutes with a mouth full of blood. I think the point in that is that there's nothing that Lombardi has demanded of the Packers that he didn't demand of himself in full measure in his own playing days. In 1937, he graduates cum laude from Fordham. He goes to law school, marries, and is forced to find work. He coaches at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey and teaches Latin, physics, and chemistry. In 1947, he returns to Fordham as an assistant coach. In 1949, he goes to West Point as an assistant to Red Blake. Lombardi gave all the credit for his football success to Army's Red Blake and his time at West Point Academy. In 1954, Lombardi became an assistant for the New York Giants, but saw himself as a head coach. For five years, Lombardi searches impatiently for a head coaching position. He's rejected for one reason or another. In February of 1959, he arrives in Green Bay, head coach and general manager of a team that hasn't seen a winning season for 11 disastrous years. A team with no direction, no future, and no morale. Here's Paul Horning. We knew from the outset that he was in command, a take-charge guy, and a guy that you couldn't fool around with. Here's Vince. I didn't come in and have a meeting with the players and say, myself, I wonder what their morale is going to be. I wonder how they're going to accept me. That wasn't what I said to myself. They're going to have to accept me. I'm not worried about their morale. I'm worried about Vince Lombardi's morale here. 
Alone, Lombardi resuscitates a disorganized, depressed, dying team. He force-feeds the Packers with his will to work, his demand for discipline, his relentless drive to win. By summer's end, the Packers are Lombardi. Here is Jerry Kramer. We were graded, of course, every play of every game throughout the year. And uh, on Thursdays, the grades would be posted on the blackboard for every eye to see. And, uh, Get him out of there, will you? Perhaps this was the start of something, instilling some pride in the individuals. Here again is Paul Horning. He's always said that you can't play a football game on Sunday. You have to start playing that football game on Tuesday, the first day of practice. Come on, look at me, 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 look at me. And he's always believed that there's only two things that come before football. That's your religion and your family. There's only one job, and that's football. Here again is Matilda Lombardi. Somebody said he made football players out of some men, and he made men out of some football players. I think he's much more proud of the fact that he made some men out of football players. Here's the great Bart Starr. He tells you that if you give anything less than the best that you have within you at any time, regardless of the, the situation, regardless of the consequences, that uh, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating professional football, and you're cheating the fans who, uh, uh, who have made the game what it is today for you. But most of all, you're cheating your maker who gave you that God-given talent with which to succeed. Here's Vince. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part and that's all that's necessary, I think, I think he's in the wrong business. I think he's in the wrong country. One of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. Here again is Jerry Kramer. I've made the statement at times, his gifted children, and I think he thinks of everyone on the club as a child, or his child particularly. And he drives his gifted people so much harder than he does anyone else. He demands that you use your God-given ability the best you can. Here's Willie Davis. He's a coach that I'm sure that have prepared a lot of us to go out and live in a competitive society. Uh, he taught us a lot of values about life. As head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers, Lombardi led the team to five NFL championships. And like all good things, even the best things, well, this happens. Green Bay Packer football, as all of football, has grown in leaps and in bounds since 1958. The season begins... Take a good, hard look. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers. A winner. To every task, he brought the desire, the dedication, the discipline to succeed. He never coached a losing team. Because of the nature of the business, and because of the growth of the business, and the corporate structure of the Packers, I believe it is impractical for me to try to do both jobs, and I feel I must relinquish one of them. How about regrets? If I had to do things all over again, I, I think I would be very, very... I think I would pray for more patience, maybe, and more understanding. I, I think these are the two areas where I could, uh, I could improve a great deal, and I've been trying to, believe me. And there you have it, the life of Vince Lombardi, born on this day in history in 1913. This is Our American Stories.
we continue with Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working hard to perpetuate policies that help small businesses become big ones. And as we tell you over and over again, without small businesses, where do the tax dollars come to support our firemen, our police, and everything else that we care about, including the safety net here in our great country? And today, Aubrey Riggle brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. I got married at 16, and I had my first child when I was 17, and my next child at 18, and my next child at 19. So I ended up with three babies, and finally my aunt told me to call the last one caboose and let it be the end. You're listening to Marcia Taylor, likely the first woman to own and operate a trucking company, Bennett International Group. But before she was a leading businesswoman, she was a young mom of three babies, growing a startup business into what is now one of the biggest trucking companies in America. I grew up in southern Illinois on a small farm with my mother and father and brother that was seven years younger than I was. My mother always had a big garden and she had a lot of chickens and I would help her can. And my dad always had a lot of wheat and soybeans and corn. So it helped him in the fields and it was a great way to grow up. When I was 14, my father, he had been sick and he just uh, got up and just passed out. And I mean, he just, right then he just died and left my mother and I and, and my little brother Duane with a farm. It was just a devastating time for me. I ended up being the kind of the responsible one in the family. I married really early. I think I was being a little rebellious. My husband and I lived on the farm and he worked on the railroad and I was a housewife. Neither one of us was really ready to be married nor ready for the responsibility that having three small children. And my husband started drinking and it just become a very, very abusive relationship, both physically and mentally. I knew I was going to have to try to get away to get out of that situation. Some of the people in our neighborhood had bought the rights to this small trucking company in Georgia. I'd said, well, you know, I'd like to go to Georgia. And uh, so they, there was an opening and I jumped at the chance. I knew nothing about trucking. I I mean, literally nothing. But I knew it might be a way for me to get the children and to move to a different location. We loaded everything we had up with a truck and a 40-foot van, and all of our belongings took up about 10 feet of that van. And we moved to Georgia and moved into a mobile home and was able to at that point filed for divorce. I was working and I had children were like the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Actually, the man that I went to work for, we ended up getting together and uh, we ended up getting married. My mother had not been in the best of health. We called her and asked her if she wanted to come to Georgia and live with us and help with the children so I could really focus on work. So we worked really hard, and in 1974, we had the opportunity to buy this little small trucking company that had 15 trucks and 30 trailers, and we only had like $500 in cash to be able to start this business, but they sold it to us on credit. 
in order for us to make payroll, I would do all the billing on Wednesday, get everything billed, and one of us would take all of our invoices and meet one of our drivers halfway. Our driver would pick up the invoices, take them to our customer, and he would process them, write a check. We'd do the same thing. The driver would meet us halfway, pick up the check, deposit it in the bank, and so I could make payroll on Friday. Our customer helped save us all through that time by getting our invoices processed so I could make payroll. I don't think you could start a business with $500 and do what we did now because of the way that the industry is and the way that people want to pay your invoices. Now customers want to wait 60, 120 days before they pay you. It was a difficult time, but I look back and it was, it was a good time. We were working to build this company together. Marcia was finally getting the business on solid footing until the ground was taken out from under her. My husband, J.D., uh, was a heavy smoker and it was really affecting his health. We had gone to Houston, Texas to look at a rail site for one of our customers. And while we were there, I saw this billboard and it was advertising a stop smoking clinic. He knew he needed to stop smoking because it was causing him to begin to have emphysema. So we went to this uh, smoking clinic that was attached to one of the large hospitals. They injected him in the nose and in his ear and in his throat. And we went home and the middle of the next week, we were at work and, and my husband said, you know, I, I, I don't feel well, I think I need to go home. So he went home, and whenever I got there, I went into our bedroom to check on him, and he was just burning up. So I said, I think we need to take you to the emergency room, because he never got sick. So they started checking him, and his blood pressure kept dropping. So uh, they came, and they said, well, I think we're going to take him up to intensive care. We just want to see what's going on. The next morning, at about 6 o'clock, they came out and they said, I want you to prepare yourself because I don't think he's going to make it. And I was just like, what? Well, how could this be? He was in the hospital for three days to where he, his body just started shutting down. Through those injections, he had developed a gram-negative bacteria. They had injected this bacteria into his body. They had to first find out what kind of injections he had gotten, which really wasn't much of anything. Then they had to discover what this bacteria was and and they they just couldn't stop it and they took him into surgery and he basically coded in surgery and he died the next morning so all at once I was just kind of left with this business that we had finally had gotten a bank that would take a chance on us and had gotten a small credit line and now this is back in the 80s and there really wasn't any women that was in the that was in the transportation business. Certainly nobody ran a trucking company. And I was really worried that the bank would call our note because they wouldn't trust, you know, a woman. And I have three small children that I still have to take care of and my mom. But, you know, I just had to put all my faith in God that whatever was supposed to happen, he would see me through. My drivers all just kind of gathered around. There was 30 people that worked here at that time. And everybody just said, look, we can do this. We just went to work. I bet I work, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week. It took a lot because we're not in a business that's an eight to five business. You don't turn the responsibility off whenever you go home. 
Through her faith, the support of her employees, and her dedication to the company, Marcia pulled through. But her children were still small, and her success came at a cost. I feel guilty that I didn't get to spend more time with my children when they were growing up. I wish I could go back and change that. I mean, my mom was there, thankfully, and she always made sure that there was a meal on the table, that they got to the ball games, that they got wherever they needed to get to. But I feel like I missed a lot. Now I've gotten to work with my children now, you know, and so I'm very fortunate in that way. When they were small, they would come to work with me. They always had to be involved. When they got sick, they slept on a cot behind my desk. They really learned it from the ground up. It's just been a great blessing to me to be able to work with my family and children. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your mother. And I say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your kids either. But even my grandchildren, I don't get to spend near as much time with my grandchildren as I'd like to, even though I have four of them that work here. It's had a lot of ups and downs, but God's always seen me through. And we've been listening to Marcia Taylor and she's the owner of the trucking company Bennett International Group. What a story thus far, and we're going to hear more on the other side. And my goodness, now we know, now you know, and we try to do this for you, to empathize with the people meeting payroll. Because it's no small task, and it's a heck of a responsibility to be responsible not just for yourself and your family, but for dozens of other families, and to have that pressure. And the price that's paid, I mean, she had sacrifices to make and regrets. And none of these success stories are Pollyannish here on Our American Stories. Everything comes with a price, folks. Everything. And when we come back, more of Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story. My goodness, as good a one as we've had here on this show. After these commercial messages, more with Our American Stories. Turn to Marcia Taylor's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, again, our American Dreamers series are always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, fighting for small business owners across this great country. And when we last left off, well, Marcia knew she had to differentiate herself from all of her competitors in order to survive. And so she did. We started to say, what could be our specialty? What can we do that that limits our competition. Our niche is things that are a little bigger, a little heavier, that require tarps, that require a little bit more work to haul. Anything that's too large to be um, hauled that needs to be driven, you know, we'll put a driver in it, you name it. So today we're made up of 14 different companies that all do 
different types of transportation. We have about 3,200 drivers and owner-operators and about 400 different offices. We're an international company. We do a lot of ag equipment, air conditioners, rockets. We do a lot of work for the government. One of the newest ventures that we've just gotten into is AA&E, which is ammunition, explosives, so forth. There's only 17 carriers allowed to move AA&E. We just did the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and uh, the big Falcon that's out in front. We deliver that Falcon. We're international. We um, import and export, and we bring a lot of wine in from Argentina. We export a lot of sweet potatoes. We move a lot of manufactured housing, and when there's some sort of a national disaster, if they require manufactured housing, that we'll get involved with FEMA to help move those units. In fact, they're the largest mover of manufactured housing, better known as mobile homes, in America. They're the largest mover for the United States Department of Defense, and they're also the largest driveway company in the country, meaning their pickup truck drivers deliver upwards of 450 campers and RVs across the country every single week, and it doesn't end there. We're very involved in oil and gas and do a lot with the wind industry. We move big windmills that are being installed in all the wind farms, both by hauling and through our crane and rigging. Four years ago, we started a crane and rigging company. We have cranes up to 900 ton, and so that's a very niche market. I think God has just always led us where we needed to go. Nearly 71% of all freight moved in the United States goes on trucks. Without truck drivers, our economy would come to a standstill. Yet the American Trucking Association figures that 60,000 more drivers are needed by trucking companies. And that number is predicted to reach 100,000 in just the next few years. The trucking industry is always up and down. I mean, there's always a lot of things going on, but probably one of the, the most difficult things is finding uh, really qualified drivers that want to get into this industry. When you do have a driver come to you, you want them to enjoy working for you and you want them to stay. But our retention rate is about 39%, which is really very good. A lot of companies' retention rate is over 100%. That means her competitors are losing all of their drivers for the year, and then some. It's a tough business, but we've got a lot of drivers that's been with us for a lot of years. They get used to where they like to run, they get used to what they like to do, and, you know, they stay with us. Our business is usually one of the leading indicators of what's happening in the economy. We're usually the first to see it pick up and the first to see it slow down. Over the years, there's been numerous times that we weren't sure if, you know, we were going to have enough money. Whenever the bottom fell out of everything in the 80s, we had made like a million dollars at that point in time, which was a lot of money for us. And it's like the recession hit, and it's just like everything just stopped. In two months, we had lost the million we had made and another million. We never really wanted to lay anybody off. We worked some flexible hours, and people that could would maybe take one day off, and then some of the people that couldn't afford to take a day off, somebody else would give them their day. And so we were able to make our way through it by not having to lay anybody off. 
and in the 2008 recession? Same thing. You just kind of buckle in and you just manage your balance sheet. And one thing about our business, another reason I say God is so good, is because we do different types of things. It has always seemed like when one thing was really slow or bad, one piece of the industry, something else was good. When things were so slow, we ended up getting a huge contract that saw us through. We've always come out of recessions and done well. Last year was one of the best years we have ever had in our industry, simply because I think there was so much pent-up business out there. You could just feel it. We did over a half a billion dollars. We're pretty excited about that. That was a big milestone for us. With such a big milestone in the books, does Marcia, who is now 74, have any intention of retiring soon? Like most successful business owners, absolutely not. This is my family. There's people that's been here for many, many years. I can't imagine not being here. About three or four years ago, I guess, my kids kind of said, you know, we're tired. We've been working a lot. And they've been working a lot of years. They said, we're ready to retire. And I said, you know, I, okay, we'll think about maybe selling off some, keeping some. But then I thought, it's not fair to my grandchildren. They work here. This is a good place for them. And we just need to work as long as we can. Also, I firmly believe that you should get up every day and work to make a difference. I feel like I can do that here. And not just through her business, but through her foundation, Marcia has made a difference. About five years ago, we started a foundation based on Christian values, where we would give back 10% of our earnings each year. One of the things we do is we have a friend that runs a camp in um, Old Town, Florida, because it's a Christian camp. And we take a week, every year we call it Camp Bennett, and we sponsor employees' children or grandchildren. And then we also sponsor kids that just maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to go to the camp. Every year there's usually like 40 or 50 kids will be saved and several they'll be baptized. That's one of the things that we enjoy. We just sponsored several wreaths across America. We put 15,000 wreaths on the graves at Andersonville a Cemetery. From back during the Civil War, maybe they're old, old gravesides that there's nobody left that remembers those gravesides. Drivers will deliver wreaths to the cemetery and get people wreaths placed on these gravesides. It's, it's a very moving and it's a wonderful way to honor some of our veterans. We try to use this company to help show Christian love. I definitely feel that this is a ministry. It allows us to reach people that we might not reach otherwise, both through our foundation and then just every day. I had a uh, vice president of safety, rough guy. Sometimes his language wasn't the best. Just being here, being in this environment, us saying prayers before meetings, ended up, he came to Christ. And he had told me many times that he thought if he was not working in this environment, that probably would not have happened. Being able to use this company to help people is the greatest sense of fulfillment. And that was Marcia Taylor, what a voice. What a life story. Three babies by 19, small town life in southern Illinois, which is like small town rural life everywhere in this great country. But it made her who she was. A really difficult first marriage, a divorce. She took a chance, moved to another state with not much money. Gave a shot at a company, 
and a business she didn't even know. And my goodness, she knows it now. $500 million in business. But that's not what she's most proud of. You heard it. Keeping the people together through a recession, not laying people off, and transmitting her values through work. And it is one of the great ways we do it, folks. What we do is often who we are and what we make of it. Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story, as good as any we've done here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and with a story about the COVID-19 pandemic and how our fellow Americans are responding. Briggs Sorber is someone whose life story we've already told. In his teens, he and his brother John started a moving company for beer and book money. In that order, they reminded us. And these two men are better known today as two men and a truck. But now with thousands of men and women, thousands of trucks, and with 380 franchisees. We read about how many of these franchisees decided on their own to do things like moving the personal protective equipment that hospitals especially need for free, wanting to do their part in all that's been going on. And so we decided to call up Brig to get the rest of the story. Here's Brig Sorber on COVID-19. You know, God did not invent this and bring it on to us. He, he doesn't do that. But what he does do is he can allow it. And I do think that our world, everything was spinning so fast and so quick that it's really, it shut everything down. I mean, everything from the NCAA basketball to, uh, to NASCAR, to baseball, to NBA championships, and when you talk about sports, to spring breaks and graduations, and, and we can go on and on with that. And it was just a, an amazing thing. And when you understand that everything is in the palm of God's hand, why has he allowed this? And let's not, and I, it's like I told, uh, you know, our, our executives, I said, we can't look the same when this comes out. We can't spin our world back up to, to the way that it was. I don't think that that was God's intention with this. And so a lot of things that we have done, we've changed. We have, you know, obviously the cleanliness is, you know, we're, we're, an, we're an essential service. So, the masks, the gloves, all these things, it, it really woke us up to cleanliness. We've always prided ourselves with that. I think that's one of the reasons we have such a high referral rate, but can we, can we be better at that? And then what is the culture of our franchises? Is the culture good? And were we able to maintain and hold on to most of our frontline people? And, and we were. So anyway, I, went to uh, our executives and I challenged them. I said, when this is, when we're back to what we consider normal, I want each of you to come to me with two, two things that, w- that changed how we work that we're not going to change back because we like it so much. We think it's a good idea. And I think we need to do that in our personal lives too. What is it? What is something that you do now because of this COVID that you didn't do before, but you're going to continue doing it. 
for me, I hate playing cards. Totally hate it. My wife loves playing cards. Been married 34 years. It's like, crap, there's nothing to do. I guess I'll have to play cards. It's kind of like a green eggs and ham moment. You know, it's like, hey, this isn't so bad after all. <laughs> so Brandon and I play cards now. You know, I'm actually building things and fixing things. I never thought that I, I could. But when you have time to sit and do these things, you get great satisfaction out of the little things in life. So, okay, in business, what are some of those things that we can do better because we had time to do them better? Or it was so important for us to, you know, to get the attention to detail. What are some of those things that we just, we just don't want to go back to the way that we were? And also, as businesses, uh, many of us get, not all, but many of our businesses, we get frustrated. It's like this was an, an overreach. This was a, you know, they're stopping us from working. We should be able to work. And um, I don't know. I just didn't want to get caught up in that as much as let's just take care of the people that are in front of us that we can take care of. We were blessed in the fact that we were an essential service. And so we were able to work and maintain and keep people housed. I got several different stories of why we're an essential service. One part was uh, we're an essential service uh you know, in our corporate offices in Lansing, Michigan, and we have our first franchise, which belongs to my family in Lansing, Michigan. And I could not deal with the fact that I had movers going out there and I was sitting back at home. And uh, so my wife and I decided, hey, let's go and buy 40 breakfast burritos. Let's take those uh, to the Lansing office for, uh, for the guys. Gave me an opportunity, uh, myself and Michael Arietta, who is our manager there talked with the movers and then I was able to jump on the truck. My first time on the trucks paid well in, in uniform, I should say in like 30 years, which is kind of funny. I was able to, uh, to jump on the trucks and I didn't tell the customers who I, who I was. I was just kind of like the third guy and we did an uh, internal move, meaning that we didn't move anything out into the trucks on this specific job. We're just moving things around. And this lady was, I don't know, her, low seventies at age. And she goes, are you, aren't you afraid of getting this, this sickness? And I said, no, not really. I said, it, we're, you know what? I just take care of people and, I, and I'm, I'm a healthy person. I think that I could, I could work through it. And, you know, we had, you know, we had wipes, we had all that stuff. And I said, what's, you know, what's your story here? And she said, well, I've got a, my mom and dad have been married 68 years. Um, they're in a, they're in a, a medical care facility and they're about to put them in separate rooms because of this COVID. She goes, if they do that, they will die because they have not been separated since marriage. And so I'm moving them back into my house and thank God that you guys came and you, you can move all these beds and put everything in place. And I'm going to put them in the living room here and, and we have it all set up. And uh, it was just like, it, it made me think, man, what other stories are there? I mean, we're not moving from Pottery Barn during these times. Um, these are people that uh, they were in the process of moving. Um, they already sold their home. If they didn't get moved, no. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we like to tell stories about everything here on this show, art, commerce, history, Faith. And this one is a local story. It is a story that, well, it could happen anywhere in the country and does happen anywhere in the country. And Sammy Smith 
and works here at Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast just about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. And he's the director of character development for Ole Miss football uh, with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Sammy Smith, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. Sammy, let's start where we always start when we do our in-depths with uh, people we talk to on the show in our in-depth segments. And talk about where you were born and talk about your parents. Well, I was born in a little small town um, in Florida. Actually, the town that I was born in was not small. It was Orlando. I was born in Orlando uh, Memorial Hospital, but I, uh, my parents lived in a little small town called Zellwood. Uh, very few people there. Um, it was a community that was a migrant community uh, known for farming. Uh, one of the things that Zellwood, Florida, was famous for was corn. Uh, we had a, a corn festival every May that people would come from all over the country to come be a part of. So um, I grew up there in that area. I had a great mom and dad, uh, two younger brothers, and uh, uh, that's where I spent the first, you know, 18 years of my life. I went to uh, uh, Popka High School, which is a school just north of Orlando, Florida. And, and talk about the, the community, the the mixture of people who live there. You said it was a migrant community. Talk about the the mix of folks that live there, the types of people who are your neighbors? Well, um, the community that I was in was was more of a black community, but uh, across the tracks, you know, we had uh, uh, Caucasian people. There were some uh, Hispanic people that lived in the area. Uh, so it was, a, it was a nice mixture of folks. Um, I went to school with uh, uh, both Hispanics and uh, Caucasian folks, so it wasn't like I was in a, in a community that was just uh, segregated or anything. You know, we were all... Um, a part of a, a great little community in Zellwood. And some of my uh, dearest and longest friends now are some of those people that I grew up with as a child. That's great. And talk about then your, when did you first know you had uh, some athletic talent? Talk about your first discovery about your, your abilities on the gridiron and in other places. Talk about sports in general. If something tells me you may have been good at more than one sport, Sammy. Well, I started playing football in the streets of Zellwood. We played sandlock football. You don't see kids doing that a lot now. No, you but don't. But, man, we used to uh, have some hard, you know, no pads tackling football and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, it was something that we were raised doing, and I think that's why our football program at Apopka, even to this day, is still is a great program. Um, so just love the game of football. Uh, my dad played football when he was in, a younger man and in high school and uh, he grew up in a time when, of course, there was a. It was during segregation, so he didn't have an opportunity to go off to college. But so I always had to hear about uh, how great a football player he was, and uh, they used to call my dad the goose. And I had to hear stories all the time about man. Whenever we went to watch your dad play, we 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 waiting for him to make a big play so we could say the goose is on the loose. <laughs> so you know that's the community that I grew up in. I grew up. Uh, probably at the age of 10 years old, I noticed that I had a lot of uh, special abilities because I was able to play with the kids that were, you know, 13, 14 years old and, you know, mix it up right with them. And your size, by the time you were a senior, uh, talk about your size, your speed, and what what you did on the gridiron, you know, how you uh, ran, the number of yards you accumulated. Uh, you had some kind of high school record, Sammy. Well, I um, grew up loving track and field. Uh, I was a sprinter, but I was a big sprinter. Um, all through middle school, I won, you know, county track meets in the 100 and 200 meters. And then I went to high school and, 
you know, in high school, I was a big tailback. I was 215, 20 pounds, and, you know, I was a 4'3", 40 guy. I was a 10, 10 300-meter guy, state champion, 100-meter, state champion, 200-meter guy, and ran track all through college and high school, and uh, just God just blessed me with a lot of ability. So I, I came out during the era where my favorite player was Herschel Walker, so and I kind of modeled my game after him. I, I I was in that mold of a Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson type tailback. Yeah, and those were guys that had the size and the speed. One at Auburn, of course, and uh, one at the University of Georgia. And so you you get all kinds of offers. What's this like as a high school senior? And so many of us see this this pressure on young athletes, but there's also some great opportunities. And I would assume that there, you had a lot of great coaches calling on you and your family. Um, how did your family handle all that, by the way? And how did they keep you humble when all this was happening? Because, my goodness, it's so easy for a young athlete to forget that they're human beings and they're like everyone else in the school. How did they keep you in place? How did you come to the decision to pick the college you picked? Well, I had a great high school football coach, Coach uh, Chip Gerke, and uh, I was blessed enough to have uh, a, a couple of guys that kind of went on before me out of my high school uh, one of the guys that, that that grew up in my neighborhood that was probably, you know, five, four or five years older than me. His name was Cedric Anderson. He was one of the first ones from our high school to to go big time college football, and he went to Ohio State. And uh, so I had the opportunity to for him to come back during the summers and you know kind of talk to us and encourage us of how to uh, what to expect on the next level. And I started going to FSU football camps, I think, when I was probably in eighth grade. And, and that's I, Florida State. Florida State. And I, I just fell in love with Coach Bowden, uh, his staff that was there. Uh, University of Florida was an hour and a half away from me, and I would go up sometimes to watch their games. But uh, Tallahassee was my draw. You know, that's, it, it kind of drew me there, and I, I just loved that community. Uh, had a little um, – uncertainty about where I was going to go when I was being recruited because I was recruited by some great people. Uh, Vince Dooley, I had a great amount of respect for him at Georgia. And again, I told you earlier, I was a Herschel Walker fan, so I love Georgia. And then Bo Schembechler out at Michigan, I visited there and just just loved Coach Schembechler. So, you know, three of the probably best coaches at that time were coaches that I really had an affinity for. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, I just – couldn't see myself going anywhere other than being in Tallahassee and playing for Coach Bowden and the coaching staff that was there and and uh, the great class that we had that came in that year. You know, Deion Sanders, a good friend of, friend of mine now that was a part of that freshman class that we brought in in 1985 at Florida State. Well, the Florida boy stays home in Florida. When we come back, more of the life of Sammy Smith. An Oxford man now, a Florida man most of his life, uh, but we like to call him a fellow Oxonian. And when we come back, more of Sammy's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. In our in-depth hour today, we spend it with someone local. And you may not know the name. If you're a football fan, you do, and you remember it. Uh, Sammy Smith. And we left off with Sammy choosing Florida State 
and a legendary coach, Bobby Bowden, and talk about, first of all, what you saw in Bobby, and we've had Bobby on the show, and talk about what your parents saw in Bobby, because I'm sure your parents had something to do with his choice, if you have any kind of parents. I know my parents had a lot to do with almost every major decision I had in my life. Even today, I still talk to my dad about things I'm going to do next. Uh, talk about those things. Well, just just what a great recruiter Coach Bowden was. Man. I mean, when you hear the stories about how he come come into uh, players' homes and uh, the immediate impact that he had on the moms, well, those are true because he came into my house and uh, uh, I knew right away that certainly I wanted to go to Florida State, but just him coming and interacting with my mom and dad just kind of you know stamped the seal. I mean, they loved him. Uh, they knew that he would be a coach that uh, would would care for us. You know, our, his players would care for me, uh, would go out of the way to make sure that um, I was doing things the right way. Um, that would be a, a father figure towards uh, me away from home. Uh, he was just a great man, a man that, uh, had, you know, wore, wore his faith on his sleeves and on his shoulders. He was just a great, great, great man. And uh, uh, without a doubt, probably the most influential man I've had in my life outside of my dad. Uh, he was just a great, great, great coach to play for. And by the way, we hear this over and over again. We've heard this on our, on our hour on Bear Bryant. We heard it on our hour with John Wooden, guys talking about Coach Wooden 10, 20, 30, 40 years after having experience with him. Indeed, when we played the uh, funeral eulogies of Coach Wooden, mm-hmm. it was remarkable to see men in their 50s, 67, and this went beyond race, class, creed. It was he loved me like a father. Mm-hmm. He was hard on me, but I needed that kind of hard. But he was never mean to me, and he's always building me up. And he always expected more out of me than I did. And that was really the remarkable part of Coach Wooden's legacy. And by the way, we learned that Coach had a deep, deep and abiding faith. Mm -hmm. Um, ESPN rarely covers these matters, the faith of so many of these coaches. They sort of leave it out and shame on them. Again, again, this faith crosses races. We did Eddie Robinson's story. And my goodness, the degree to which he appealed to the moms and the Mm -hmm. dads as he recruited people and young young men in particular to grambling was an integral part of his life. Same with Bear Bryant. Talk a bit about some of the things you learned as a young man playing for uh, Coach Bowden. Well, you know, you don't know it at the time, but uh, coaches in general and, and people that are impacting your lives can speak things into your life that, uh, that, that don't show up until later in life. And, uh, uh that's what happened with me. I, I knew who coach Bowden was. I always had a great relationship with him, uh, knew what he stood for. And it would be later on in my life, uh, when I would go through some, some difficult times that I would remember something that he said, you know, that would encourage me to, uh, to get up and to keep going and to keep pressing forward. And, uh, uh, again, just a tremendous uh, leader. Um, I've had the opportunity now working for FCA for about six years now on many occasions to be at different places where he's speaking for FCA, and I'm the one that's uh, introducing him and sharing you know, a story or two here. And uh, I get more gratitude out of that uh, than I ever did as a player because I get to really express you know, who he is to me uh, what he's meant to me, and it's not even about the football, but it's about the the other life lessons and things that I've uh, learned through his uh, tutelage. Indeed, and you wish that sometimes kids in schools had that kind of tutelage inside the school and not just on the gridiron, and it's something we talk about time and again is some of these unique relationships that get forged between coaches and players, and yet teachers don't get that same latitude to either punish, reward. Mm-hmm. They're sort of restricted to just 
handling the kid on the curriculum level, mm-hmm. level and not on the moral level and the development of character level, which is in the end what life's all about. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your performance on the gridiron, Sammy. I mean, you had quite a career at Florida State. Highlight it for us. Top line for folks who aren't football fans, what that career looked like at FSU. Well, I came in um, really a highly rated offensive player. I think I was the top running back in the country that year coming out and uh, went there with great expectations. And uh, certainly were expectations that I placed on myself, uh, too. And uh, uh, Florida State at that time was sort of uh, in the bottom, you know, feeder of college. They weren't really that good. But uh, I saw something in Florida State that I thought uh, could be tremendous down the road. And uh when I signed there and got Deion Sanders to sign, and uh, we had guys, uh, Chip Ferguson, uh, Peter Tom Willis, just to name a few guys, uh, Pat Tomlin, and we had an amazing football class. And uh, I saw the opportunity that down the road we would be a great football program. And, and to just see that happen, I think, in 1987 was when I had a breakout year. I had my best year there at Florida State, and – and, uh, man, we had a fun offense. You know, we ran the ball. We threw it around a lot. Um, I think I averaged over seven yards a carry that year. Um, I, I used to always uh, tell my running back coach, Coach Billy Sexton, man, you guys should have gave me the ball about seven or eight more times a game. I, I might have been able to get 2,000 yards. But, um, you know, just an joy- enjoyable time there. I held the single-season rushing record there, I think, for about seven or eight years prior to uh, – Work done coming and having a spectacular year. And certainly uh, his record has since been broke, broken by Dalvin Cook. And now we got a, a young one down there now that, that could uh, rewrite all the record books if he stays there for four years, uh, Cam Akers. Oh, you bet. You bet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in, and rooting for them, I know, because so many athletes I know, they love having, mm-hmm. you know, they love having the records. But, you know, great, great athletes are mm-hmm. also rooting for that next generation to surpass them if they can. Let's talk about uh, all that attention. You're, you're now getting ready to go into the NFL. What's that like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of you guys aren't, that you're playing with aren't going to make it to the NFL. You're now picked and you're drafted. Uh, there's a lot of joy in that, but yet you're leaving some of the guys mm-hmm. behind too. What's that like um, and how do you handle all that? Because now you're going to the big leagues, and with that comes a lot of accolades, a lot of, well, all kinds of other things come that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, money comes that way, something you didn't have like you were about to have. And talk about that. Put 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 us in your shoes mm-hmm. as a young man about to go from a, a guy with maybe enough scratch and enough money in your pocket to take your girl out to Denny's, and now you're a multimillionaire overnight. Well, I tell you that that's one of the the, the things I enjoy most about uh, the role I have now and the position I'm in now is that um, you know you go through things in life and 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 you maybe they're not the best things. Sometimes they are good. Uh, but any of those uh, situations are benefit to other people. And uh, I get to share that, that opportunity that I had years ago to become an NFL football player and um, the, the, the good choices that I made, the bad choices that I made that would hopefully uh, encourage uh, young men to uh, do things the right way, you know, see things a little different. Because at that age, I think it's no different now than it was then. Um, you, you, you think you're invincible uh, you're getting ready to have uh, the time of your life, and uh, you don't really realize that, man, that, that God has blessed you with this opportunity, but that opportunity is is, is uh, finite. You know, it's not an infinite opportunity. It's going to come and it's going to go. And uh, what you do with that small window that God has given you to be a, a professional football player matters. And uh, so, you know, 
Uh, I was excited just like anyone else would be that I was going to be able to do for my parents, going to be able to have things that I wanted to have and uh, uh, be able to create a life for myself. I was married at the time with a, with a little girl. So I was excited about being able to provide for my family and uh, take care of my, my little girl and my wife, but certainly um, um, made some choices and, 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 and mistakes that uh, cost me dearly. Talk to us now. You're, you're in the NFL. Um, who, who drafts you? It's, again, a Florida team. It's the Miami Dolphins. Um, who are you playing with? Who's your coach? What's going on? And talk about your NFL career. Well, I, I was drafted in 1989 by the Miami Dolphins, as you mentioned. Uh, coach Don Shula was, was my coach. Uh, Dan Marino was my quarterback. We had great, great players there. Uh, Mark Duper, Mark Clayton, receivers, Jim Jensen. Um, but, but that was what that was. You know, I got an opportunity to play in my home state and was excited about the opportunity to play for the Miami Dolphins and, uh, uh, was really looking forward to having a great career there. And, uh, you know, as, as, as things would turn out, uh, it wasn't the career that I really expected. You know, I, one of the things I, I share with, uh, our young men now is, because a lot of these young men, they come from small communities. I left a little small town of Zellwood. I went to Tallahassee, which at the time seemed like a metropolis to me, but it was small. And then to leave there and to go to Miami was a, certainly a life-changing event for me. Um, um, just a, a whole different world down in Miami, you know, for, for a small-town boy like myself. And uh, uh, got involved with uh, – uh, different people, met a lot of different people, and just uh, got exposed to a whole different world than I was really used to. Yeah, and it's hard to prepare anybody for something mm-hmm. like that. You can tell them about it. You can lecture them about it. But one day they got to actually experience it themselves and make some choices, mm-hmm. and they're going to make some good ones. And you can bet at that age they're almost guaranteed to make some bad ones, no matter yes. what the upbringing. It's just that's life. We all make good and bad choices, and hopefully we can learn from them. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Sammy Smith from small town Florida to big time football in Florida and to the NFL and the rest of this story. Well, it just gets better. It gets more complicated and it gets deeper and more beautiful as we continue it. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation, our in-depth conversation, and we love digging in and doing deep dives with some of the big leaders in this country, and you've heard us do segments on all kinds of them, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to our leadership series and the beginning of our in-depth series, and we continue again with Sammy Smith. 1990 is a tough year for you, Sammy, and let's start first with the loss of your Mm two-month-old son, Jared, to infant death syndrome. By the way, on this show, we spend a month um, honoring the loss of, of sudden death mm-hmm. uh, and infant de- and infant loss and, and, of course, miscarriages, too. Um, not enough time is spent on this. And millions and millions of Americans, and women in particular, uh, when they go through a miscarriage, it is simply the worst moment of their mm-hmm. life. And yet, because it's not a born baby, well, a lot of people just sort of discount it, and they don't understand that woman to that woman mm-hmm. and to that husband. 
that was a baby that just uh, was lost. And yeah. talk about that loss and what it what it did to you, Sammy. Well, that 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 was a time in my life when I believed that uh, God was really moving and working some things and really trying to get me in a in a state in my life to where I would would really seek Him, you know, seek God and and, and understand and and realize where all the blessings had come from me. I think at, at some point in my life during that time, I kind of forgot where I came from. And it started really with uh, uh, my career that year, that season. I had uh, a really bad, uh, it wasn't that bad, but I had a knee injury in uh, preseason football that kept me out of the preseason and had to come back and perform and didn't perform that well and and then I had to, this happened with my son, um, and my son was two months old. I never forget that night. It was a uh, a bye week actually, and I was home. I uh, went to Orlando that weekend and um, left Miami. And that same night that I left to go to Orlando, something told me go home. So I left a bunch of friends that were hanging out with me at, at one of the clubs there, and. And I got in my car and drove back to Miami. Now, mind you, I just drove three and a half hours to spend the weekend down there, but something was drawing me back home. And I would get home about uh, 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, my wife didn't even know I was coming home. And the first place I went to was my son's crib. And when I reached in there to, 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 to check on my son, I felt this cold body. And, you know, he had passed. And I know that that was a... That was a God moment. That was a God thing. I, I know that he wanted me to be there. He wouldn't have wanted my wife to wake up that next morning and be there. And I'm wailing Orlando, and she's in Miami, and we've got a son that's passed. So um, that was a time in my life that was uh, really traumatic. It was a time that um, I really questioned God, um, really couldn't understand how I could uh, God would allow us to have a, a son and allow us to only have him for two months and then take him. So I was in a really depressed state at that time. And let's talk about next the, uh, and this is the, the trauma that perhaps really sparks almost mm-hmm. a new awakening in your life, uh, but it may have been the low point as well, mm-hmm. and that's uh, being arrested uh, for drug charges. Mm-hmm. And, and talk about that, uh, Sammy. How did this happen? How did, how did the arrest occur? And what, what was this like mm-hmm. for you, for your family particularly, and, and friends uh, what were you going through? Talk about these moments. Well, this was after my career, after a four-year career. I was out of football, and uh, I had moved back home. I had left Denver. That was the last team I played for, and, and uh, certainly had had some traumatic uh, things happen with the loss of my son, with the with the way my career had ended, ended with an injury and uh, my performance, and and I came back to Florida wanting to do some positive things. I had started a company and was building homes for uh, people that couldn't afford homes, and we were holding mortgages, just trying to help people out in our community be able to have nice homes. And uh, uh, I got around some friends. There was one particular friend that came to me and asked me, could he borrow some money? And I was well off, and I loaned him money, and it was less than a week later. He came back and paid me. You know, It was $10,000. And he paid me money on top of it. And, of course, I want to know how, how can you afford to pay me money like this. And and that's where it all got started. He was involved in drugs, and and I want to know more about it. And that's that's what the enemy does. When you're trying to live and, 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 the, and, the, and, the, and to do things the right way, the enemy will always come at you with some form of way of getting you back or getting his hooks in you. And uh, 
I made the choice to get involved with some friends, and uh, it would be 10 months later, man, I'm getting a knock on my door. It's the DEA. You know, I'm in some serious trouble. And uh, I really didn't know how I had allowed that to happen. That, that first night I got arrested, man, I, it was just mind-boggling to me that I had let that happen, that, that, that stepped that low into getting involved into something that I had never agreed with, had always encouraged these guys to try and do something better. And what I found myself was, man, my identity was always placed in sports and in football. And and, and, and I found during that time that um, that was God's way of, of, of allowing me to really see how important it was for my identity to be, be in him. And I, that first night I got arrested, man, I never forget sitting in the Orange County Jail. And uh, that's the first night that I was fully broken and knowing that, you know, man, there was another way for me, and I asked God to change me right then. And there, knowing what I was facing, uh, I apologized to God for how unfrugal I had been with all the gifts and talents that he had given me, and I asked him for another opportunity, whenever that was going to come, for me to be able to serve and to be a, a different person and to be able to make a difference in people's lives. And you knew it right away, which was good, and and, and, and responded to that right away. And uh, the, the, the fact that you were an NFL athlete, well, the media had to just eat this mm-hmm. up, Sammy. I mean, sometimes you get disparate treatment in this great country because you're poor, mm-hmm. sometimes because you're black, and sometimes because you're rich. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you learn quickly that sometimes somebody like a Martha Stewart can find herself mm-hmm. under the crossfire because she's Martha Stewart. Yes. And uh, talk about that, that media frenzy and what that felt like. Well, I can remember being able to watch some of it on the news from jail. And I can remember the, uh, the media being in our community and, and being in the communities that were close around, you know, Zellwood, Apopka, uh, Mount Dora, those areas, and kind of interviewing people. And, and people knew my character, and they they knew that that wasn't Sammy Smith. So you got all these people that, that loved me that were, you know, doing interviews saying, no way, they're, 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 you know, they're pinning this on Sammy. He would never do this. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, no, I did it. And how, how did I allow this to happen? How did I allow the enemy to fool me like this? And it was hurtful. Um, you know, the, the, the local policeman and uh, in the, in the uh, Metro Bureau of Investigative People and the sheriff, uh, they all painted the picture that I was this uh, kingpin of a drug dealer that had been involved in drugs for many years, which was certainly a, a lie. Uh, but I was the one with the name, you know, of all of my co-defendants. I was the one that was Sammy Smith. I was the NFL guy. I was the one that they was going to make the case on yep. and that it was going to be all in the newspaper. And I think I even had an article in Jet Magazine back then. <laughs> so it was, it was. Uh, I tell you, it was pretty uh, humbling. Um, and it was uh, something that, that really brought out humility in me to know that, uh, man, I, that that could happen to me, it could happen to anyone. But I accepted my responsibility. I knew that I had made a, a horrible choice. And all I could do at that time was uh, ask for forgiveness, you know, and, and ask God to forgive me and my family to forgive me and uh, to just pray that uh, God would be lenient and I would be able to move on from that and then be able to make a difference. And I tell you, God, is he's really done everything I've asked him. Well, when we come back, the rest of the story, this is the beautiful part of the story, and so many of our lives are informed this way, we have to dig ourselves or drive ourselves right into a ditch in order to find out what our lives are really all about, who our friends really are, and what life's all about. This is Lee Habib, Sammy Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Sammy Smith. And last time we were with you, uh, you'd heard about Sammy talking about, well, being in, being in jail and knowing that, well, he had made some bad decisions. Uh, the press, of course, had done what the press always does, and the press is, well, it's always been the same way, wanting to make money off people's pain and suffering, and they'll always be that way. Uh, but Sammy had to deal with real life and his family and seeking forgiveness. And so, Sammy, you, you find yourself with a whole new set of uh, roommates uh, <laughs> in prison and a lot of guys who'd made some bad mm-hmm. choices, but human beings. And we talk a lot about inmates on this show here in Our American Stories because there, there are folks in these prisons and they need our attention. There are our brothers, there are our sisters, and they're friends. And mm-hmm. we, we've all made mistakes there before the grace of God go all of us in these measures. Um, what did you learn about so many of the people you were living with now for for and how many years were you living with them there? Well, Sammy? I was at uh, I was in federal prison for right at six years. Um, I started my uh, sentence in uh, Coleman Correctional Facility, federal facility there in Florida, uh, which was probably an hour from my home, uh, which was a good spot because you know I got to see family all the time and my daughter. Uh, but man, you know, my heart went out to some of the. Uh, men that were in that facility, uh, young men, uh, old men, uh, um, people that weren't going to have a second chance. You know, I had, I got 87 month sentence, which was a little over seven years, but there were guys in there with life sentences for the same, uh, uh, distressions that I had, but some of them had multiple, you know, distressions. They were career guys and that had been in trouble all their lives. And, um, but man, what great people. I got an opportunity to meet some of the most genuine people, uh, inside than I ever met outside. And I had an opportunity to really just kind of do life with them for the time I was in there to be able to share my experiences and to be able to share, um, you know, my shortcomings and be able to share, you know, how I believe God was changing me at that time and what he was going to do when I got out. And I think one of the most blessed opportunities I've had, and I've had a chance to speak on many occasions was being able to go back to that same uh, facility that I started a sentence in 18 years prior and go back in and speak to young men that were in there and, and to let them know that there's hope and there's opportunities when you get out, uh, if you'll change your life and uh, decide to seek uh, God. And so much of, of that life, there isn't hope. Mm-hmm. There's not enough contact with the outside world. And there's certainly, Sammy, and this is a tough word for men to use, but there's not enough love. Mm-hmm. And so talk about that, and what what did you start to do? Were you, were you uh, of, of the knowledge then that you had a ministerial quality to you, that you could minister to other men? When did this, when did this come upon you, that you had either this gift, this talent, or this desire? Well, I know while I was there, I started seeking God, and I started asking, you know, you know how could I make a difference, God? What would you want me to do when... When this is all is open over, and when the door is open for me to leave here, and uh, I knew that I had a story to tell, I knew that God was going to bless me tremendously. I knew that I would be able to put my life back together because God promised that, you know. And uh, so, when I got out, I still was a little um, shaky, you know. I still was kind of concerned with what people thought, and you know, man, did they look at me as that's that's Sammy Smith? He had it all, and he threw it he away. Threw it away and, yep. You know, and and so I still had those little reservations, you know, and then um, I got blessed, to be honest with you, man, to meet a wonderful woman when I got out. 
And uh, we start dating, and I start hearing some of her story, and I start thinking to myself, man, how, how could I'm sitting here in self-pity with everything that uh, my future wife, who's my wife now, had, had gone through. And uh, uh, I was getting opportunities to share and to speak, and I would always choose the little things. You know, I was getting opportunities to speak at big events, but I was trying to find the little things just to speak to a few kids. And and uh, i never forget, it was probably not 2000 and. 10, uh, the FCA director for Orlando area had found my number some kind of way. And he called me and asked me, would I come and share at the Capital One Bowl uh, FCA breakfast? And it was Alabama and Michigan State playing in the game. And I remember hanging, you know, telling him before hanging up, hey, I'm going to have to check my schedule. I'm not sure I can, I'll be available to do that. And it was going to be a thousand people there at this event, right? And I hung the phone up with him and immediately. God spoke to me and said, how long are you going to hold in the testimony that I've given you? I'm giving you opportunity after opportunity to share. You promised me when you were in prison, you was going to share your testimony. And I call Wave Robinson is his name. I call him right back within less than five minutes. And I told him that I was clear and that I, I could do it. And I tell you, that event really changed my life. Just being able to go there and to share that, I, I, I saw that. God had given me something through the experiences that I had gone through that could be positive and that could help other people out. And uh, I've been sharing ever since. You know, and that little thing, that little voice that stops you from sharing, of course, is pride. Mm-hmm. And we know that that pride tries to separate us from other people. Yes. And like it look like we're more important, we're better. And then the second we let go of that pride, it's when we start to connect yes. with other human beings. We play uh, an hour on Chuck Colson. Every year, he's one of my personal heroes. Mm-hmm. And what happened to him in prison, and how he learned that he'd been just living this wretched, prideful life. Yeah, and that once he was able to testify about his shortcomings, suddenly he had friends for the yes. first time. He had relationships for the first time, and his faith in in, in God brought him so much closer—not just to, mm-hmm. to to friends that he lost, but to friends he'd never knew he'd had. Yes, uh, and it was beautiful. And they weren't his friends because he was Mister Powerful Lawyer at the White House, right? And they weren't your friends because you were Mister Running Back. At the Miami Dolphins, you were just Sammy. That's right. Sammy the guy. That's right. And uh, that's so hard. Tell us a little bit about your bride. Here's this woman who uh, I, I would only uh, venture to guess blew you away because here she is loving a guy who's just, as some people would see it, blown it all. And, well, you you had a criminal record, and she's offering you the kind of love that you, you can only ask for in life, which is unconditional mm-hmm. love. No judgment. Finding you at a point in your life that's mm-hmm. got to be as you know, just coming out of prison, having lost everything, a really difficult place to be. And there she is with open arms. Uh, talk a bit about her. Well, um, I was on supervised release at the time. That's when you know I was at a halfway house, and you get an opportunity to go home on the weekends. I think I had about five or six months of halfway house time. So I was in Tampa, Florida, and then I would get a furlough or whatever, a weekend pass to go home. And it just so happened one of those weekends I was home, uh, my wife now, Shalanda, uh, had come to our home. My dad, God bless his soul, he just passed this August, but he worked for a tile company. And whenever they had discontinued tile, he would get, you know, crates of tile. And he had a big uh, storage shed in the back that we kept it in. And people got to know my dad as the tile man. And uh, she had just built a home and uh, had come over with uh, a couple of other friends of hers looking for Sammy Smith Sr., my dad. And they were looking at tile, and she was trying to find some tile for her house. And I saw her, and I was like, wow, you know. And I ended up asking one of my cousins about her that, that knew the other two people that she was with. And 
and he knew her and he told me, you know, she's a, a wonderful young lady. Um, she's got a son. Um, she's single, but she's got a great heart. She's a Christian and I wanted to meet her. And so we arranged to be able to meet and, uh, she gave me a little hard time there for a little while. She was kind of ducking me, but, uh, I was persistent. And then we started dating and, uh, life has been just amazing ever since. Uh, we've been married now for 13, 13 years. And then we dated for probably three or four years prior. So for all the families that have somebody in, in, in the system, uh, or, or they know a kid who's about to go into that system. We know the kids, you know, the teachers know, they know the kids who are going to probably end up in jail. A lot of them are fatherless. Some of them have fathers, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are fatherless. And then others, well, they have some friends that are questionable and might lead mm-hmm. them to these places. And so um, we, we, we personally in our family have a, a nephew who's in, 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 in prison mm-hmm. here in the state of Mississippi. And we, we visit him and we pray for him and he's made some bad choices and he's trying to straighten up his life. But without that communication from the outside world, he'd have no choice and no chance, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, talk to, to the family members who are going through this, because it's tough. I mean, the, the family has to deal with all the outside world, their opinions, their chattering, their gossiping. Uh, some advice to family members who have family in prison, and also to total strangers mm-hmm. um, who live near a prison and might be able to just go and visit some of these men and women locked up. So some advice to people. Listening you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, the Word of God tells us to love our neighbors. And, uh, um, you know, these young men and these young women that are in situations that have gotten them into prison, uh, they need love. Uh, they don't need their families to turn their backs on them. They, they don't need their friends uh, to turn their backs on them. They need those uh, people that are that are out in the world and, uh, and that are um, living life to, to continue to pray for them, uh, to continue to support them, to, to continue to encourage them, and to just be there for them. You know, you know God works in mysterious ways. Uh, I think, you know, in, in retrospect, I would never choose to want to have to go through what I went through, but I would not choose it if it got me to where I'm at today. So in other words, I'm thankful for uh, the opportunity I had to get in trouble and go to prison because it made me the man that I am today. And uh, that's what I pray for, for people that are in prison, that that whatever uh, God has in store for them that needs to be worked out and that's the route that he sent them, that his work will be done and that they'll they'll come out whole and uh, be able to have productive lives. But they certainly need the support of uh, their family and their friends. Well, on those notes, Sammy, thank you for sharing the story. Sammy Smith's story, and by the way, his bride's story, and his family's story, a redemptive story, a story of love, and a great Christian story here on Our American Stories. Uh-huh.